Welcome to the Housebound Historian, Episode 4. I'm Felix Bunnell. I'm reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking back in 1951. We're on Chapter 1, which is called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852 to 1873. We're going to finish up Part 4 and do all of Part 5 in this episode number 4. The residents of Oregon Territory, who live north of the Columbia, felt that they were getting a bad deal in the territorial legislature partly because the problems of the heavily populated Willamette area dominated the meetings and partly because communications were so poor that sometimes a session of the legislature was over before a northern delegate knew he had been elected. The northerners wanted to become a separate territory to be called Columbia. In October 1852, Maynard made the long, slow trip south on business that was both official and personal. He was a Seattle delegate to the Monticello Convention, I've also heard that pronounced Monticello, a semi-formal congress of northern citizens who sought to divorce their part of the territory from that south of the river. And he was also bound for Oregon City to persuade the territorial legislature to pass an act that would give him a divorce from his wife Lydia. Maynard was an effective lobbyist, smooth in speech and dress, quick to tip a bottle or remember a face, and a known supporter of the Democratic majority. The legislature passed his divorce, though one Whig senator objected on the not unreasonable ground that Mrs. Maynard did not even know she was being divorced. A few days later, when the legislature reorganized the counties north of the Columbia, it chose Maynard's store residence as a county seat. At the same time, it honored another deserving Democrat, William Rufus King, the newly elected vice president of the United States, who died shortly after taking office by naming the county King County. Pierce County, the next one south, was named for President-elect Franklin Pierce. Maynard was appointed Justice of the Peace and Notary Public. On his return trip, Maynard stopped in Olympia long enough to tell Mrs. Brashears of his divorce, ask her to marry him, and obtain her consent. He hurried on to Seattle to straighten up his house, but within a few days, during the coldest week of the coldest winter the settlers had suffered on the Sound, he paddled back to Olympia. Though Mike Simmons had threatened to shoot Maynard if he persisted in his courtship and had once imprisoned her at home to keep her from seeing the doctor, Catherine Brashears was waiting for him. They were married at a farm outside of Olympia and on the same day sailed for Seattle to honeymoon in the new county seat. Maynard's first official duty was a marriage. Eight days after his own wedding, he read Seattle's first wedding ceremony, uniting in wedlock 21-year-old David Denny and his sister-in-law's sister, Louisa Boren. He was the first to kiss the bride, first to give them a wedding present, a book. He also wrote out the first marriage license in his big, bold hand and filed it in his safe. When he was fulfilling his other functions as Justice of the Peace, Maynard held court in Yesler's cookhouse, an outsized log cabin, 25 feet square, with an enormous fireplace, which made it the most comfortable as well as the most spacious building in town. At the conclusion of the first trial, Justice Maynard decided that the mate of the brig Franklin Adams had, as charge, appropriated the monies and goods of the vessel for private purposes. Since there was no jail and a shortage of manpower, he let the culprit off with instructions to keep his books in better order. Maynard's own papers were in some confusion. When he had first come to Seattle, he took a married man's claim of 640 acres, 320 for himself, 320 for his wife Lydia. Now, having divorced Lydia, he sought to change his claim so that her share would go to Catherine. He felt he was justified in doing so because Lydia had never lived on the property. He sent a sworn statement to the land commissioner about the change, saying that he had been intermarried with Lydia A. Maynard until December 24, 1852, 
and was legally married to his second wife, Catherine B., on January 15, 1853. The commissioner, not being aware of the peculiarities of Maynard's marital affairs, assumed that this meant Lydia had died. He filled out the forms accordingly. There was another complication. Between the time Maynard filed in Lydia's name and the time he applied for Catherine, the donation laws had changed. Catherine did not qualify under the new provisions, a fact that nobody noticed at the time. There was also confusion in the platting of the township. When Seattle became a legal entity in 1853, it was necessary to file a formal plat. Maynard surveyed his property and Arthur Denny went over the Denny and Boren holdings. Each planned to have streets paralleling the bay. But since the meeting place of the two plats, Mill Street, down which ox teams skidded logs to Yesler's Mill, was also the point where the waterfront curved. The streets did not meet. Denny talked to Maynard about it, hoping to work out an agreement. But personality as well as geography worked against a compromise. Denny was a Whig and a teetotaler. Maynard was a Democrat and a bit of a drunk. The doctor had been hitting the bottle when he conferred with Denny and insisted that since his streets not only paralleled the bay but ran due north and south, they should be continued across the Denny-Born holdings. Denny, while admitting that it would be neat to have the town four-square with a compass, felt that it would be more convenient to have the streets in his section parallel the water too. Maynard had taken enough to make him feel that he was not only monarch of all he surveyed, but what Bourne and I had surveyed as well, Denny remarked dryly. No agreement was reached. The next morning, the day of filing, Denny turned in his plat first. Some hours later, Maynard, nursing a hangover, appeared at the cookhouse and gave his version of the plat to Yesler. Neither man would back down, so instead of the streets curving together across Mill Street, now Yesler Way, they hit it uncompromisingly as far apart as the proprietors. They remain far apart to this day. The town grew, Maynard's section faster than Denny's, probably because the doctor was so free and easy with his acres. A year after the plats were filed, there were only four buildings north of Mill Street. In 1854, when Justice Maynard strolled down Commercial Street from Yesler's cookhouse to his store, he passed on his right a big two-story frame building and a store. To his left was a combined residence and shoe shop and the blacksmith shop that he had all but given to Louis Wyckoff. Most of the buildings were of boards, for Yesler's mill made sawed lumber available so soon that nobody who could afford boards would build a log cabin. The showplace of Seattle was the house that Captain Felker built. Two stories high with a wide porch and three chimneys and hardwood floors and good white paint and a white picket fence. But though there were big buildings, everybody was broke. The town was built on speculation. Even the missionaries were riding home hinting that they could make a financial killing if only they had cash. What capital there was in Seattle was tied up in land and timber. Even the rich were land poor. Things were so bad, cash-wise, that it is hard to guess how the community came to realize that one of its members, Edward Moore, was a pauper. Perhaps the determining factor was, in the words of Maynard's report, that Moore was, quote, a stranger and insane besides, unquote. In a pioneer community like Seattle, nobody knew what to do with an insane pauper. Finally, Maynard offered to look after him if the county would pay his board bills. Maynard should have known better. King County had so little money that it was unable even to supply him with an official seal for his notary work. He kept the poor fellow for several months, but realizing that he would never get paid for it, at last turned him over to Dr. M.P. Burns of Stillicum, who gave him a receipt for, quote, an insane and crippled man, a stranger without acquaintance or friends, unquote. Burns agreed to look after Moore until the territorial legislature took action on the subject of relief. He presented a bill for $621 to the legislature for, quote, custody and care of a non-resident lunatic pauper, unquote.
But the legislators, establishing a tradition, couldn't agree as to the need and didn't vote assent. Dr. Burns loaded his patient into a canoe, paddled him back to Seattle, and left him. Maynard didn't want him again. Nobody did. The county commissioners decided that, quote, Edward Moore, the pauper, now in Seattle, be sold at public auction to the lowest bidder for his maintenance to be paid out of the county treasury, said bid to be left discretionary with the commissioners to accept or reject, on Saturday, the 7th day of June, at 2 o'clock in the town of Seattle, unquote. Moore disappears from the official records with that. Apparently there were no bidders, at least no bid was accepted, and the insane man was left to wander the streets. At last, the townsfolk took decisive action. They caught Moore, amputated his toes, which had been frozen, cleaned him thoroughly, put new clothes on him, and paid his passage on a ship bound for Massachusetts. Seattle found it somewhat easier to solve the problem of what to do with its first white-skinned murderers. It let them go. When in July 1853, an Indian known as Masachi Jim, Masachi means bad in the jargon, beat his wife until she died. Some of his neighbors on the White River, who had long deplored his habits and admired his property, decided that this was as good a time as any to bring law and order to King County. They hanged him. The other Indians didn't show much concern about Bad Jim's demise. His reputation with them was not good either. But when a white man disappeared on a trip to Lake Union a few weeks later, there were rumors that he had been killed in revenge for the hanging of Bad Jim. Relations between the natives and the whites grew strained. Nine months after Bad Jim's death, there was another incident. Mrs. Catherine Blaine, the wife of the local Methodist missionary, wrote of it in a letter to the folks back in the Midwest. One day last week, a man started from Alki to go down the Sound in a canoe with three Indians. The Indians returned with his canoe, clothing, watch, money, etc., and were quite badly wounded so that one of them died. Suspicions were raised that all was not right, and last Saturday, three white men and three Indians of another tribe went to make inquiries. The Indians, who were suspected of murder, had left Alki and were found among their own tribe. The whites demanded them, and they were given up without hesitation. They put them in a canoe, but it was a ground which caused some delay in getting away, during which time the Indians from the land rushed upon the men with drawn knives, and one man fired upon them. This commenced hostilities, and the whites killed from five to ten, they do not know the exact number, of the Indians. During the fracas, one of the Indians they had arrested managed to escape. The others behaved so badly they shot him. The other behaved so badly they shot him. The whites were all wounded, one of them mortally. He died last night. Mr. B preached his funeral sermon this afternoon. Another was wounded in the thigh, the bullet going through it. The other received a bullet in his cheek, which flattened against his teeth, and he spit it out. One of the Indians they took with them was wounded, so they think he cannot live. Their return to this place yesterday excited the people very much. A company immediately volunteered to go out this morning and attack them, but upon more mature thought they decided to refer the case to the governor for his action upon it. The citizens convened last night, drew up a set of resolutions informing him of affairs and requesting him to take immediate action. They sent it off in a sloop to Olympia, but unless the winds should be very fair, we cannot hope for aid from him before Saturday. The governor's decision was that a rule of law and order should be established. It was necessary to show the Indians that no one, white or red, could violate the law without being subject to trial. Sixteen months after Bad Jim was lynched, the first district court was held in King County with Maynard as court clerk. First, the grand jury studied the information the government had obtained about the hanging of Bad Jim. One of the men who helped to hang him was William Hebner. He was also a member of the grand jury. Hebner sat with the others while they returned indictments against Luther Collins and David Moorer 
but he was excused while the jury considered his own case. He was indicted, too. Then came the trial. Maurer, a simple-minded German with a fine feeling for the truth, was the first to be brought before the bar. He looked bewildered when the charge was read. It was a statement that the government considered him guilty of having committed murder in the first degree by depriving one Massachusetts Jim, a resident of King County, of his life. Moore was asked how he pleaded. He told Chief Justice Edward Lander that he didn't understand what all the words meant. The judge explained that Moore was accused of helping to string up Bad Jim and was supposed to say whether he had done so or whether he hadn't. Moore looked relieved. He was happy to have it cleared up. Sure, he'd help the boys with that. It was the wrong answer. The court quickly appointed an attorney for him. The attorney changed his plea to not guilty. From that point, the trial was routine. Moore, of course, was acquitted. So was Hebner. The prosecuting attorney gave up and asked that charges against Luther Collins, the solidest citizen of the accused trio, be dismissed. If the Indians were favorably impressed by this display of the rule of law, they did not say so. There were two ways to look at the Indians. The usual view of the pioneer whites was summed up by the Reverend David Blaine, who quickly decided the Indians weren't worth his trouble. His wife shared his opinions and mentioned them in another letter to her parents, who wrote back chiding her for intolerance and saying that she would have to love the Indians if she was to help them. The Reverend Mr. Blaine decided to set them straight. He wrote his mother-in-law, You tell Kate that she must love the coarse, filthy, debased natives in order to do them good. We can imagine in some degree your feelings on this subject, and you will need the help of imagination to appreciate our situation and relation to these pitiable objects of neglect and degradation. Once we could have hoped to do them good, but alas, they are most undoubtedly beyond our reach. Those who cannot talk the jargon or Chinook are beyond our reach because we cannot converse with them except through an interpreter. They have already learned enough of religion through the Catholics to make the sign of the cross and say, Ict Papa Ict Sakala Tai, one Pope and one God. They are taught that there is a lower region and an upper one, and that the good and bad will be separated in the future state. But moral feelings seem to be quite blunted or blotted out, and they lie, gamble, steal, get drunk, and all the other bad things almost as a matter of duty because it is so deeply innate and so fully acquired by habit. Those who can speak the Chinook are apparently more intelligent because from their intercourse with the whites they have acquired some cunning and artifice. But they are even lower in immorality than their less informed elders who speak not the jargon. They have also associated with the worst of white men and their example and influence have been most pernicious. Seeing the whites paying no regard to their religious obligations, nor even to moral principle, they could scarcely do otherwise. The principle which actuates almost all here is, quote, get all you can and keep all you get, unquote, no matter how you get it. This is fairly illustrated by a case that occurred a day or two since. An Indian wore a very nice pair of pants when he came to call upon us, and when Kate, who was in the house alone, asked him if he got them by working in the sawmill, he replied, Waka nika ikum momuk tolo, meaning, no, I got them by gambling. When she said, momuk tolo tias musachi, gambling is very bad, he replied, waka musachi, waka musachi iskum hayu dala. No bad, no wicked gets plenty dollars. This is the principle. Nothing is wicked which gets plenty of dollars. In a letter home a few months later, Dr. Blaine said, quote, If I had the value of that mill here, or even half of it, I could buy the whole town plat of Seattle that remains unsold, as the times are depressed and money scarce just now. And this in ten years would increase in value tenfold. One of our town proprietors, Dr. Maynard, a good friend to us, has given us some two acres more or less a short distance from the town plat, laying on the shore of the bay for a garden and orchard. The land is very rich and in a few years will be included in the town and needed for building lots. 
Maynard took a different view from the man of God. He could understand how anyone with a multitude of problems might be led to lift the bottle too often. And instinctively, he liked people. He liked everyone who was not a Whig, and he even liked some Whigs. The Indians had helped him. He helped them. He learned their language, doctored their illnesses, drank their liquor, paddled their canoes. He was especially close to Sielth. My heart is very good toward Dr. Maynard, Sielth told the Indian agent, and Maynard's heart was good toward Sielth and most of the Salish along the Sound. He knew how it was with them, and he was sorry. Part 5 They lived in a living world. The fish they ate, the animals they skinned, the very hills they climbed were cousin and brother to the Salish of Puget Sound. They lived with their world on terms of genial equality. It had much to give, and they took as their portion whatever was necessary, wanting little more. The women dug clams on the muddy beaches and smoked them for the winter. The children gathered wild blackberries and the dusty tart Oregon grape, black raspberries, and the fragile grainy salmonberry. The men caught the Chinook salmon in nets, traps, or weirs, on hook and line, or, during the spring run when the salmon choked the shallow streams, by clubbing them. The women dug the starchy bulbs of the blue-flowered camas plants. The men hunted deer and elk with bows made of yew or dogwood. They lived in cool houses of woven grass mats during the summer, and in winter in lodges of split cedar. They dressed in buckskin or dogwool blankets if they were wealthy, in cloth woven from the inner bark of the cedar if they were poor. When they worked near the water, as they often did, they went naked. They rode the swift short rivers and the ever-changing waters of the sound in beautifully designed dugouts, painstakingly burned and carved from cedar. They had a life of daily change within a fixed pattern, a life of constant challenge, but of challenges that were familiar and could be mastered. The mysteries of life they explained in their spoken literature, in the tales told around the work fire, the stories that made all the world alive and kin to the Salish tribesmen. In their legends they explained how man discovered the use of fire and lost it and recovered it, why snakes were poisonous east of the Cascades but not around Puget Sound, and how the Salish wiped out their enemies in every battle. It was only in their legends that the Salish tribes killed all their enemies. They never really became involved in wars of extermination, nor did they occupy the lands of defeated tribes. They raided and retreated. They fought to avenge affronts to tribal honor, but seldom for personal gain. It was simpler and safer to hunt or dig or snare or chop than to fight. So much easier, in fact, that when the warlike Kwakiutl, the smoke of the world people who lived a harsher life on Vancouver Island, came raiding down the sound, the Salish usually found it expedient to take to the bushes instead of standing to do battle. The more northerly tribes on the Sound tended to be a bit belligerent, and each tribe had its list of tribes it tended to like or to distrust. But the occasional wars were actually raids. The object was to sneak up on the enemy's village, burn it, capture a few prisoners to serve as slaves, and get away. A war was not for killing. Then the white man came. They brought with them wonderful things, tools that would cut the great trees, blankets larger and brighter than those of the richest chief, liquor more stimulating than the kinikinik, a local drug the Salish sometimes smoked, and guns and beads and medicines. The Indians were pleased to have in their midst these people of perpetual supply. But the white men brought other things. They brought new diseases. They brought a religion that said many things the Salish had always done were wicked and should be done no more, though the reasons were not clear. They brought the idea of private property. The Indians had owned some things individually, but not land, which belonged to the people and was used by the people. When the whites took acres and miles of land and shut the Indians off from it, the Indians could not understand, but they were slow to anger and there was much land. By the time they realized the danger, it was too late. The very pattern of their life had unraveled and the whites were on the sound in strength. In such a situation, there were two things an Indian leader could do. 
He could fight or he could temporize. And that's the end of part five of chapter one of Skid Road by Murray Morgan. Chapter one is called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852 to 1873. On the next episode, part six of chapter one. I'm Felix Bennell.